my crew member was keeping a good watch. He was, uh, he was at the helm and he was looking up and as he was looking up, boom, we hit something. I thought at first maybe it was just a rogue wave or something like that. Uh, but then a 20 to 25 foot whale surfaced. It reminded me of a humpback, but it was too small to be a humpback. Episode 305, Linus Wilson returns to talk more about sailing around the world part-time. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Before we start today's show, I wanted to give you an update that we received from Nate Marr with Marauder Sailing in Vieques, Puerto Rico. Nate was on the show back in episode 172 and uh, wanted to let you know Vieques did get hit pretty hard by Hurricane Irma. It wasn't the direct hit that they were nervous about, but they still got hit pretty hard. And uh, Nate tells us that he is fine, his crew is fine, and his boat is fine, which is all great news. But Vieques got hit hard enough that people there really do need help. He reports that the average annual income on Vieques is only $15,000 a year and that many of the people there couldn't prepare for the hurricane because they couldn't even afford to go buy extra groceries. So now they're really hurting. So Nate has set up a GoFundMe campaign to try to help out the people of Vieques. And you can find that at GoFundMe.com forward slash help Vieques after Irma. And Vieques is spelled V-I-E-Q-U-E-S. That's help Vieques after Irma. And if you go to the adventuresportspodcast.com and today's show, then we'll have that link there for you so you can just click it. But you can also go to GoFundMe and search for help Vieques after Irma. What's cool about this, Nate says that 100% of the money donated will go to help the people of Vieques and that every dollar will be documented with um, how the person was helped and who was helped by these funds. And Marauder Sailing Charters is going to match the first $5,000 donated. So if you want to help out the people in Vieques, you can do that by uh, taking part in this GoFundMe campaign. You know, Florida was hit really hard. Our people here need help too, but the people in Vieques are also our people. So if you want to contribute, then that'd be a cool thing to do. So if you want to learn more about Nate Marr and Marauder Sailing Charters, go to episode 172. And if you would like to help out the people at Vieques, then just take part in this campaign. Thanks a lot, and now on with the show. Hello, friends. Thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. I have returning guest Linus Wilson with us. Linus has been on the show a couple of times, and the reason is that he is in the middle of what he calls part-time sailing around the world. And we like to catch up with him about once a year and find out where he went and what he did on his ongoing journey, his ongoing saga around the planet by sailboat. He has a unique approach to doing this. just makes a lot of sense. So we're going to find out how the last leg of his journey went. Linus, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kurt. Well, it's always fun to have you on. We've enjoyed your shows quite a lot. And I'm going to give a brief history. Maybe you can fill in some of the gaps. But you uh, you fell in love with sailing pretty much because of a volcanic eruption in Iceland. 
So that's always a good way to start. You got a boat in Louisiana, where you are a professor at the University of Louisiana, a finance professor. And you sailed that boat around to Florida, eventually to the Bahamas. And then you did another leg where you went by Cuba and then all the way down to Panama, went through the canal and ended up dry docked in Ecuador. And your most recent leg took you to Tahiti, a big jump across the Pacific. And uh, you've had tons of adventures along the way. So what did I leave out that was critical there? I think you got it all. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's testing my memory, but I'm glad that I remembered. So tell for our listeners who didn't hear the previous episodes, which, by the way, if you go to adventuresportspodcast.com, you can find the previous episodes with Linus to get all the details from the previous legs of his journey. But um, your approach to sailing around the world is kind of unique in that you are trying to avoid the storm seasons and make it work in with your teaching schedule. And I think it's so cool because you don't have to quit your job to do it, and you're also avoiding some of the biggest pitfalls for most cruisers. So explain that to us. How does that work? So the idea is that if you keep on going in one direction, eventually you'll go around the world. Uh, And so the best way to do that is not to quit your job because it's really expensive to – it's really hard not to have a job and support yourself. Uh, So most people don't have that big a nest egg. Uh, So it's nice to keep your job and uh, be able to support your your sailing part of the year. Uh, I – in the southern hemisphere, the winters are in the northern hemisphere summers, and the wintertime in the tropics is the – the season where people sail, and that's the season that's free from tropical storms. And so, you know, the plan is to to not sail during tropical storm seasons. And uh, if I sail during my North American summers, uh, then I can uh, sail in the prime cruising seasons for the South Pacific and uh, Indian Oceans. So your goal was to hightail it farther south quickly so that then you could take advantage of your summer breaks from work to do more of your sailing in the winter south of the equator. That's right. Awesome. And you also do some sailing during your winter breaks, I I understand. Well, that was kind of a, that was not planned, uh, but it was, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? That type of thing. Right. So the plan was to keep it in Ecuador for a year and, in Ecuador, uh, you have to get a customs uh, extension. So you get three months to keep your boat in Ecuador, and then you have to apply to customs. And I had an agent, and she assured me that I could get nine-month extension, but she got me a six-month extension. She did believe that I could get another e- extension, but I was not totally convinced since she was very convinced that we get a nine month extension. So I was worried that we wouldn't get the extension and and I would have to move my boat out of Ecuador in April, 2016 while I was still teaching. And I thought it was better just to cross uh, the uh, Eastern Pacific 3,500 nautical miles in the month of December, 2015. So that means that you, uh, you did have to cross during what could have been storm season. Well, that's the not true. Uh, so 
in the eastern P- South Pacific, there is no tropical storm season. Okay. There are no tropical storms. I think it has to do with the Humboldt current. It makes the waters really cold. And so that that part of the ocean you can sail all year round. It's also true in the, the South Atlantic you can sail all year round. But in the you know, the western South Pacific, the the that would have been the tropical storm season, but I wasn't in the western South Pacific. I was in the eastern South Pacific. All right. Well, I think the main takeaway here is that you've done your homework and you figured out a way to avoid the storm seasons and make it work with your employment, which I think is really cool because that is a big challenge, like you said. Everybody who loves adventure sports has to manage their time around their income uh, producing time, right? And so I think that different people have tried different things, and I'm always curious um, each person's take on that because it gives other people ideas about how they could do something similar. Because if you love adventure and you love spending time doing an adventure sport, some of these things like world travel, sailing, cruising, you know, a lot of things take a substantial amount of time. Some people take a leave of absence from work. Some people save up as much money as they can and just, you know, really live as inexpensively as they can so that they can have extended adventures. And uh, it's always fascinating to to find out each person's angle. So your angle works out really well. So if you're a teacher or a professor, especially, that can work really well for um, cruising south of the equator might be the way to say it, huh? Uh, sure, yeah. You know, I, I think it's also potentially farmers, um, potentially business owners. It just depends on the individual, the how they want to structure things. You know, I think I think the people. You know, I've read a lot of books of about mountain climbers, then uh, they climb very high mountains on very long expeditions, and for all of them, it it it, it was a uh, financial sacrifice to take off work to do that but because they did it in fairly small chunks say two months of the year uh, it was a lot more manageable than say taking off 12 months of the year right so you're kind of doing it in that pattern so how long have you been cruising and how many miles have you made it so far I guess we're probably pretty close I mean personally I'm probably pretty close to 10,000 miles you know I I think since I last talked to you, I took the captain's exam. So I had enough days at sea to get to be a Coast Guard licensed six pack captain and supposedly take people out for money sailing. But I've never done that. I just did it for the fun of it. Uh, But so it's not a huge amount of miles, but it's, you know, to get around the world, I think you need a minimum of, uh, 22,000 miles. That's the distance of the equator. But in, in practice, uh, I would say probably a minimum of uh, 30,000 miles to get around the world, nautical miles, which are a little longer than statute miles. How long do you think it'll take you to uh, finish the journey all the way around? Uh, I would say probably 12 years. So I think the typical is, is five to six years. Uh, but since I'm doing it only two months at a time instead of six months at a time uh, for somebody that's say full time. I think I'll take twice as long. I want to, I don't want to rush through the Pacific. I think that's one of the, the downsides that I've seen of a lot of 
narratives of people that have sailed around the world that they really regretted that they didn't spend more time in French Polynesia. And one of the great things about uh, the way I'm doing it is that uh, the rules in French Polynesia for people that are not uh, European Union citizens is that they can only stay in French Polynesia for three months. And that's really uh, not enough because it's such a beautiful place. Uh, you know, I think most people say that the Marquesas, the Society Islands, the Tuamotis are some of the most beautiful places in the world. Mm. And so the way you're doing it, um, you're leaving and then coming back. So does that mean that you get to you burn your three months and then come back the next year and do your another three months? Right. So, I, you know, I'll get I've uh, used up three months. Uh, you take six months off and then you get another three months. And so next summer I'll get another potentially three months. I won't spend it all, but I'll get to spend more time in French Polynesia than uh, your typical cruiser who's also rushing across the Pacific. Uh, because of the the hurricane seasons, and right. so they need to get to some sort of place where they feel comfortable uh, for for the cyclone seasons. Uh, so, I, so in December, uh, I went back to the boat, and I had two crew members, and we uh, were going to cross the Pacific, and I, that was kind of a rush trip, uh, you know uh, that. My boat is fairly slow. It goes about six miles an hour when it's making a good speed. and uh, But I was able to do that. You know, it typically takes me about a week to prep the boat uh, when I need to recommission it. And that includes, like, getting the engine ready, uh, getting the sails back on, and, you know, also getting kind of basic uh, groceries for whatever uh, crews we're going to do and getting water and fuel, those types of mundane things. Uh, and so I had to, because I uh, was not, uh, I was surprised by the fact that I had to do that. I had to take off during Thanksgiving break and then right after my teaching and uh, we, we set off. So there was a little bit more of a rush job this time, but I, I, I guess there are a couple of logistical questions that I have about the way that you're doing this. One is that you're trying to get your boat out of the water when you leave it for the season. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to find some place to dry dock it. Some people might say, ooh, I'm going to leave my boat halfway around the planet in some foreign country. Have you had any issues with that, or do you think it's actually preferable? Uh, I think it's preferable. I'm in Louisiana right now, and... Um, I, I know you've heard the the about Tropical Storm Harvey. Oh yeah, and it was actually Category Four hurricane when it hit Texas. But we're feeling kind of the outer bands here in Louisiana. Last year we had uh, substantial flooding for an unnamed hurricane. Obviously, back in 2005, Katrina hit New Orleans, our home port, and uh, the the first marina I was in almost all the boats were destroyed due to Katrina. So I think it's actually a lot safer what I'm doing, hauling it out uh, in, in the uh, tropics uh, than, than leaving the boat year round in new Orleans. Mm, okay. And do you save money that way? Uh, I think it is a little bit cheaper too. So I think it costs me about $300 a month here in French Polynesia. And I think that's pretty standard. It was Fairly expensive in Ecuador, uh, but 
uh, there really weren't any facilities, uh, comparable facilities there. There's facilities in uh, Tonga and Fiji and New Caledonia and, of course, Australia. Uh, so you can get uh, very far on. And if you want to go to New Zealand, you can go to New Zealand, although I, I recommend people avoid New Zealand in my book. Mm, okay. Why is that? Why do you want to avoid New Zealand? Uh, because New Zealand has a lot of gales that that are between New Zealand and the tropics. And so most cruisers have their worst passages between New Zealand. It's also way out of your way. So you're really going into the higher latitudes out of your way uh, when you stop in New Zealand. So it's a beautiful country to visit. And I recommend people visit there, fly there. I I just don't recommend they take their boat there. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Well, something else about the way that you approach sailing that I liked was that you know, when you first started going through the coast of the Gulf of Mexico, you could actually stay within sight of land and go from port to port and, and do things kind of in a, in a, well, I'm learning how to do this fashion that really worked. I remember in your first book talking about cutting over the Bahamas, choosing the right time and the right way to do that was a big deal, you know, but now you've not made just the little, what, 90 mile jump to the Bahamas. You've gone across the Pacific. So my point is that little by little, you're taking bigger and bigger chunks of, in cruising and learning more and more about how to do it safely and, and responsibly, and, and it allowed you to build your skill set as you journeyed. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's true. I, I also think, you know, the Gulf Stream is a very dangerous spot of water. It's important to be very careful when you're crossing the Gulf Stream, which it runs along Florida's coast, and, and so... You do have to be very careful. If I were there, again, trying to go to the Bahamas or going to Cuba, I'd be very careful. And I was very careful on the Cuba trip to pick my window across the Gulf Stream. And you could really tell the difference in the waves, even on a calm day, uh, when you're in the Gulf Stream versus uh, when you're not. Well, and in small boat sailing, when you're going along at, like you said, you got about six miles per hour, uh, some of these currents can really push you around. Yeah, the nice thing about the the Pacific crossing was that you had favorable currents most of the way. And so it was a really fast in terms of the average miles because you had a favorable current about uh, one knot. And uh, you also had the wind and waves pushing you all in the right direction. And that was really a first for me. Uh, it was a in, in part, it was a learning experience because I didn't uh, I didn't have a lot of experience with dead downwind sailing. And, uh, you know, that's something that we're going to go through in the YouTube series. We have a monthly vlog uh, that that details our adventures on uh, YouTube.com slash Slow Boat Sailing, the Slow Boat Sailing channel. And one of them talks about all the downwind sail combinations we tried. And it's, it's actually very challenging to go dead downwind because the the main sail wants to go back and forth and uh you have to be kind of set up for that and you have to a lot of people will try to avoid going dead downwind but we didn't have that luxury because we needed to make the miles and so uh, we did it and uh, nothing none of the sails broke at least (laughs) well i've heard not that i would know i i've only done a little bit of sailing linus but I've heard that when you're going downwind like that, it can also be frustrating because the boat doesn't behave as well. There's nothing pushing it to hold it 
in a in a regular position so it rocks back and forth more and and that sort of thing which can be frustrating yeah i think it can be harder on the the steerer uh especially if the sails aren't well balanced i think especially like the late in the trip uh, I wanted to slow the boat down so we arrived at daytime instead of at nighttime uh, because it's a lot safer to go into an unfamiliar port during daytime when you can see things than at nighttime when you can't. And, uh, you know, our autopilot failed the last night. Of and course. it failed <laughs> midway through the trip right after we hit the whale. Uh, we had We had a spare autopilot, but we didn't have two spares. And so... Uh, we hand steered the last day. Hmm. Okay. Well, you just mentioned hit the whale. I'm sure everyone said, what? He just said that in passing. But that's that's something to talk about. So tell us that story. So we were about mid-Pacific. We were um, 1,800 miles from our last port in La Libertad, Ecuador. And we were 1,700 miles from our next port in Hiva O in the Marquesas. And the closest piece of land to us was a thousand miles away in the Galapagos, and that was upwind. That's a pretty good swim, right? So that's a long <laughs> way to swim, uh, and uh, you know, it was just the middle of the day. It was kind of in the afternoon. Uh, my crew member was keeping a good watch. He was uh, he was at the helm and he was looking up, and as he was looking up boom, we hit something. I thought at first maybe it was just a rogue wave or something like that. Uh, but then a 20 to 25 foot whale surfaced. It reminded me of a humpback, but it was too small to be a humpback. Uh, and, you know, it, it brown red fluid was coming out of it. So I think it was bleeding or something. And there was just really no way to see it because it was under the water. It, you know, when we hauled out the boat uh, after that, uh, we saw uh, you could see the mark where it hit, which was like a foot under foot, two feet under the water. Oh, OK. But we did. I did see its fin. I did see its blowhole and it kind of had black and gray markings after after we got to land, uh, I was able to say, well, it looks the most like a minky whale based on its description. Um, the first thing we did was to look in the bilges and see if there was any water coming. I thought we would not be able to hit a whale and uh, not take on water, but it didn't pierce the hole, luckily for us. And uh, we had no ill effects and we just kept on sailing after that. So, <laughs> so I think we were really lucky. You know, I had, uh, heard stories of boats that have been hit by pilot whales and sunk by pilot whales, which are n much smaller. We actually saw a, a pod of pilot whales prior to hitting the minke whale. And pilot whales and minke whales are very different. Uh, that minke are like humpbacks or baleen whales. And so they eat plankton or something like that. They eat microscopic creatures. Uh, whereas, uh, Pilot whales are much like dolphins. They're like big dolphins, and they eat fish. So they're they're they're, they're very different. They they it was just a coincidence that we had seen them all uh, so close together. Mm. Uh, I talked to uh, you know 
I told a lot of people about this, and I, I was wondering if the whale was just like malicious, you know, that it was just mad at us or we'd annoyed it or something. That was why it rammed us. Uh, but, you know, one, I think the best explanation was that it was just sleeping near the surface. And uh, with its eyes closed, it just didn't see us. So on, on boats, typically, uh, most uh, pleasure yachts do not have forward-looking radar or sonar, so they cannot see in front of them. They can see maybe the depths, although our depth sounder is not good enough to see in 10,000 feet depths or even 1,000-foot depths. We don't get any depth soundings above like 300 feet. Uh, but So we really had no way to see it, but the, the whale has eyes, but if their eyes are closed and they're asleep, obviously they won't see us coming. Hey guys, it's Travis. Hey, I'm going to be doing a review on a new hammock I got just recently. It's from dreamhammock.com. Do me a favor and go onto their site and check out their selection. They have awesome products. They custom build these things and they get them to you in about five weeks. You can see where your order stands in the process and you can even see a picture of it before they ship it to you. So make sure you let them know that you heard about them on the Adventure Sports Podcast and stay tuned for the review later this month. Fall is the best time to start thinking snow, and Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help you get prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. Brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags, and they are ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. You can also rent skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes at Bentgate. What's more, they host free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Stop by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to check out your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. I was going to ask, how common is this? I mean, that's a really big body of water. What's the probability that you can actually sneak up on a sleeping whale? Yeah, I I was asking that of a, a whale expert who, who's a man who's American who lives in uh, French Polynesia now, and he got his PhD from Berkeley in marine biology, and he gives a whale and dolphin tours uh, there in Morea next to Tahiti, and he he said that he thinks that sailboats get hit by whales because they're not noisy. Right. And that other boats wake up whales, but sailboats because they're so quiet to sneak up on them. But obviously it's not it's not very common and where I was was not a place that is known for having a lot of whales in the water. It was just really in the middle of nowhere. There was a lot of whale activity there. I don't know. Uh, at the time, there was a, a Japanese fishing boat, uh, which we were able to see on our AIS. So that's the 
lymphatic identification system. And so a lot of uh, sailboats and yachts now uh, will will have AIS because it's so inexpensive. And you can see up to 25 miles boats that send out a signal. And, and so after we hit the whale, we sent out a, a, a VHF call because they were in VHF range uh, to a fishing boat. Uh, a, a large, like a hundred foot Japanese fishing boat. So it's possible they were tracking the whales kind of illegally, but maybe they were just fishing for other things. I don't know. You know, mm, if there was a big pot of pilot whales, there were probably a lot of fish around. Uh, so they could have been fishing for anything. So, but the baleen whale, I don't know why they, they would be in any particular place. So, right. And, you know, we've, we've heard of multiple accounts of like orca striking a small sailboat and sinking it you know it's not that it's common but it has happened and there have been a crazy stories about people surviving such things as that um so i i guess you know it's kind of like sharks it's very very rare that a shark attacks a person but it's still when it happens it makes people you know take pause about getting in the water because that's a really scary thought right and i think for a cruiser having a whale strike Again, very, very rare, but boy, when it happens, it can be bad. Yeah, I, I don't know what the frequency is. I, I think it's fairly high. I don't think it's one in a million. Uh, you know, it might be one in 10,000, might be one in a thousand, but I don't have any stats for that. I mean, given that you spent 20,000 miles on the water. So, I mean, there have been instances of, uh, yeah, like sailboat races where they hit whales and things like that. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the best defenses that you have for that is having a, a boat that protects its rudders, right? So mm. our rudder is protected by its keel. And uh, so I think the, the biggest, the typically, I think the biggest damage is like keels come off for reasons, or not keels, but um, the, the rudders come off and they lose their steering. And that happens a lot with racing boats that don't have protected uh, rudders right uh, i so, could see that and so i think that was one of the things in our favor that we had that full keel that protected the the sailboat even though it didn't it, it conceivably had we had an unprotected rudder they the the whale could have hit that right right speaking of the boat i'm sure that there are other sailors out there saying well what kind of a boat is this they, they're gonna want to know the details so fill us in what what are you sailing out there uh, I sail an Island Packet 31 sailboat. So those are sort of very sturdy cruising boats. I The hulls are thicker than I thought they were <laughs> after the hit. I That's probably good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think it's a sturdy boat, but I wouldn't want to hit another whale and see if it did well. So is it sloop rigged? It is a sloop rig, so it only has one sail in the front. And are you pleased with that rig? Has it turned out to be the right one for you? Um, yeah, I guess it is. I like the rig. Uh, if, uh, you know, with the downwind sailing, it might be nice to have an inner force day because then you can go wing and wing easily and then you could reef easily. And so I, I think in the maybe the fourth episode of the season, which probably come out in November, I'll talk more about that. Uh, but we were trying downwind uh, sailing combinations of like wing and wing where we 
we had a pole and we had the Genoa and then we would put out the asymmetrical spinnaker. And so I think one of the nice things of having a cutter rig with two foresails is that you could, you can reef both the, uh, if you have a furling, uh, if you have a furling inner forestay, uh, then you can reef both of the foresails from the cockpit. Whereas with a, uh, asymmetrical spinnaker, you just have to take it down if the winds get too high. And we'll show in the, the YouTube vlog, uh, you know, some instances where we uh, had to take a hammer <laughs> to bring down the, the, the asymmetrical spinnaker because the, the cleat jammed and, uh -oh. and it didn't want to go down and the sock wouldn't work. So there's a, there's a dowsing sock that many, uh, spinnakers have which are big balloon sails. They're, they're like parachutes. And uh, sometimes those socks will work and sometimes they'll jam and they jammed for us when, when we wanted to take it down. So that's the benefit, I would say, of having an inner force day and maybe a furling um, inner, inner force sail. Interesting. Yeah, I... Uh... I don't know a ton about the different types of rigging, but it, it makes sense what you're saying there. And I know that different people wrestle with which kind of a boat that they want. It's probably kind of like having the perfect motorcycle for all conditions. That doesn't exist. You know what I mean? You're going to have a, the bike that's excellent on the street, or you're going to have a bike that's excellent in the dirt. You try to get a bike that is excellent at both, and you'll never get there. You know, they're, boats are probably the same way. It would be my guess, is that you try different rigs and they are all going to have their limitations and their advantages. So, um, but you're, you're pretty pleased with yours right now. Yeah, I am. You know, I think we would have, had I waited another year, I probably would have put in a inner force, uh, inner force day, which I could put a sail in. I'm not sure that I would have put in a furling one. Uh, and we were looking at ones that did have, uh, inner four sails, but right now I'm, probably inclined not to do it because i like to have the dinghy in the front uh, and the dinghy would kind of would get in the way of that so i just use that to store the dinghy it gives me a little bit more deck space uh so i i'm not sure i you know maybe if i do a few more downwind passages i'll decide that it's it's worth it to take the time that's also you know time you have to take um in the boatyard and and uh either doing it yourself or getting somebody to do it for you. And then you want to do it right. Uh, and I, my inclination is, is more to just, uh, just go when the boat is ready to go and, uh, not have the perfect boat, uh, with all the bells and whistles, but, uh, spend some time sailing and get, uh, get out of the boatyard and get out of the slip. I think that's what it's really about, isn't it? <laughs> Sailing is about sailing instead of sitting in the marina. Yeah, I've spent yeah I've spent years sitting in the marina and fixing up the boat. So I feel like I've done my time for that. <laughs> and I probably should lean more towards sailing more. So you know, I focus on keeping the engine well maintained and I'm keeping the boat safe and making sure we have a working autopilot and those types of things. But you're, there are some bells and whistles that I I'd rather do without. Sure. because they're just too much hassle. Well, you mentioned um, some episodes coming out, and we should let the listeners know what you're talking about there. You have a podcast of your own 
And almost, if you want to learn more about what Linus is up to, slow boat sailing is the key word. So slowboatsailing.com, that's his website, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, they're all going to have a handle, slow boat sailing on them. Um, what else? What's the, three books. We've got to mention the books too. Uh, How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, which is a humorous book about, you know, your first leg of your journey. And then Slow Boat to Cuba recently came out. So there are lots of ways that people can track with you. You have a blog, you have a podcast, you have your books, and they all seem to be tied somehow to the Slow Boat Sailing title. Is that right? Yeah. I, uh, you know, in the... In the podcast, I kind of try to mostly interview people. Uh, so, in a, like this show, it's a, I just focus on cruising sailors, and I try to, try to focus on long distance cruising sailors. But I do also talk about uh, my journey and my preparations. So, I think you know one of the things, for instance, I talked about a lot in the podcast uh, was all the hassles I had to go through to get daily my four pound toy poodle. Uh, into French Polynesia. So one of the, I think, probably the most difficult things you can do when you're sailing around the world is take a pet with you. Mm. <laughs> so it adds so much more complications in terms of the bureaucracy. Uh, so that was, that's kind of one of the topics that sometimes comes up. Oh, that's funny. You know, a lot of people would be saying, well, you've got navigation. You have to learn how to sail. You've got all the boat maintenance. You have, you know, visas and passports and and uh, all the different customs rules for boats. And, and then in the bottom line is, it's the dog that's the most trouble. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, uh, the most difficult things are the, the customs visa government stuff, and the sailing is less difficult. Well, let's talk <laughs> about sailing in general now. You've done enough of it to have a good feel for it. I know that there are people out there who think, wow, it'd be so cool to see the world like that, but they're kind of nervous about the whole sailing bit. Now, what you've done to avoid the storms, that, that's one problem solved, but how much training and, and experience do you feel like was necessary before you were comfortable pointing west into the great big blue Pacific? You know what I mean? You're not going to see land for a long time. I mean, uh, there's... There's all kinds. Uh, so, you know, I've had a couple podcast guests that had almost no sailing experience and then just went offshore almost right away. Uh, there's a there's a boat called Sailing Zatara. That's their YouTube channel, and their boat is Zatara. And I think they took a few sailing courses, and then they bought a boat and left. And they had a pretty new boat, which was pretty ready to go. Uh, I interviewed uh, a guy, um, Tyler Brandt, who's a real adventure sport guy that you should talk to uh, because he's got like the world record for kayaking off a waterfall, right? So he's a big time kayaker and he's also has had a sailboat and he sailed around the world. He just finished the circumnavigation in five years actually the only person I interviewed on the podcast that I've broadcast so far that has finished his circumnavigation. Uh, and he had no sailing experience. He did take a captain with him on the offshore passage to the Marquesas. So he left from like La Paz, Mexico, and that was like his home port and went offshore right away. And he did have a captain on board to teach him how to sail. And then after that, he didn't have a captain on board and he was the 
he was the skipper of the boat. He was wow. the captain. <laughs> so, uh, that, so it's possible to have no sailing experience, no experience fixing a boat and just go. So I, but there's also lots of people that have tons of sailing experience. I talked to a guy, uh, his channel's called Sailing Yacht Zero. And he's been sailing since he's like four years old and he's a tremendous sailor. And he was so good that he lost his rudder and was able to, to sail across the Pacific without a rudder. Wow. (laughs) So, so, I mean, it, it, it just, it depends on the individual, but I think uh, the, the thinking is that you have to have so much to go out and do it. I don't think you do. Hmm. Well, I know that, there's so many question marks that pop up in my mind when I think about, especially the, the open water sailing, um, just just so many things. You know, you got to be able to take care of yourself out there. And and I think about the the proficiencies that would be wise to have, right? But I think more than anything else, it's the unknown that's intimidating. It's like, what might happen that I can't even think about now? You know what I mean? Um. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I mean, I think you try to think about all the things that could go wrong. Uh, you know, I, I'm a real big preparer, right? So I, I do read a lot and I, I listen to people's stories and find out what went wrong. Um, I think the big things that go wrong is that you push the boat too hard and you rip a sail, uh, or you, um, you have autopilot problems offshore. That's, usually the hardest thing. So I, I met a couple in Hevo that had to hand steer almost the whole passage and it was just an ordeal. And they had just really kind of, it shaped their whole outlook for uh, their whole French Polynesian cruise. They spent most of their French Polynesian cruise like waiting for parts and mm. in a boatyard instead of cruising around because they were so shell shocked and, and they were not, prepared for the autopilot failure. Uh, so I, I think that those are kind of some of the big things, you know, uh, you need to reduce sail, uh, when the winds pipe up and you, you want to make sure you have backup systems for the, the self steering because that, that can drain energy. I also think if you're doing a, a three week passage, if you can, you should have three, uh, people doing the watch instead of just a couple. I think it's 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 a good idea for couples to take on an extra person if you're going to have a multi-week passage. But most, I would say, most couples don't do that. So well, it's I up can, to. <laughs> it's I can up see to how exhausting it would be, it, even if everything goes well. How exhausting it could be. But if something goes wrong, ooh man, just two people that could be rough. Right, exactly. So when you have that autopilot failure, for example, you know, you need somebody to work on the autopilot and then you need some people to steer. So it was so nice uh, when we when I was not able to fix the autopilot, I was able to fix it the first time. But the second time I was not able to fix it. It was so nice that I had two crew members that could keep watch and they could keep watch. Two crew members can keep watch almost indefinitely. uh, And that I could take myself out of the watch system to prepare us for going into port. Whereas if we only had two of us, we wouldn't, it would all fall on the other person to steer and take long, very long watches. Uh, So I, I, I think that helps. 
We mentioned that we were going to start up a Facebook group for Adventure Sports Podcast listeners, and I wanted to tell you that it is up and active now. So if you go to Facebook and search Adventure Sports Podcast, you'll find our Facebook page, but you also now find the Facebook group for ASP. We'd love for all you guys to jump on there and uh, talk adventure and help each other out, maybe give some guidance and share some of the things that you guys have done. So do me a favor, go to the group, sign up, and let's chat. Kurt and I will be in there from time to time, and we, we want to get to know you guys. So we'll also be sending out a notice to everybody that subscribes to our mailing list, so you guys will get that link as well. Thanks for listening to the show and being awesome adventurers. The Bearline Plus by 180 Tech is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you. Well, let's talk about the the fun of it now. We've talked about the logistics quite a bit, but you know, you in the previous show you talked about some islands that you visited, including Cuba, that you just thought was such a delightful experience to uh, meet the people and interact with the uh, the cultures and that sort of thing. So, on this leg of your journey, um, tell us some stories about that. What what kind of places have you visited, and what experiences did you have? Uh, I really loved. I love French Polynesia. I, I love the Marquesas. The Marquesas are the first islands, the most easternmost islands you'll come to when you're coming from the Panama Canal or Mexico. And uh, they, they're volcanic islands. They don't have reefs. They're very jagged islands. There's just tremendous hiking to be had. Uh, we visited, for instance, Fatu Iva and the Bay of Virgins, uh, one of the most beautiful bays in the world. I think everybody says if it's not the most beautiful, it's in definitely in the top five. Uh, you know, what I love to do in the Marquesas was most of the roads are almost impossible to drive on. So they'll have roads around the islands and maybe there's a few hundred or maybe a few thousand people that live on one of these fairly large islands. Uh, but they'll have like a dirt road around it that is very steep grades and it's got a lot of potholes and so nobody will actually drive on those roads between towns or very few people will you need a four-wheel drive vehicle and you have to go really slow like 10 miles an hour and that is really an automatic great hiking situation because you have tremendous views of like windswept coastlines. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to hike just on the, the, the unpaved, but the, the main roads 
in the Marquesas, and I think that's an obvious one. There's a lot of waterfall hikes to be done in the Marquesas. So in uh, Fatu Hiva, which doesn't have an airport, and you can only get there by boat. Uh, but also in Nuka Hiva, there's a lot of uh, waterfall hikes. Or in uh, Wapu, uh, we did uh, – they. Wapu is famous for its jagged rocks, and so rock climbers just dream about going to Wapu. One of my uh, crew members was uh, a rock climber who worked at uh, Yosemite, and he was dreaming about going to Wapu the whole trip. We didn't have time to do it, uh, but uh, he he got a lot of other good hiking in, and we uh, we did a hike. We tried to hike to the top of uh, the highest peak in Hivaoa where we were at, uh, but I was too scared and we turned around, but there's some, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're really, uh, there's some, I would say, you know, uh, a lot of the mountain hikes, if you're not like on one of the roads uh, in, in French Polynesia, uh, they're very wild. Uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I've never been on the 14,000ers or, uh, I've not done a lot of hikes, uh, mountain hikes in Louisiana here cause we have no mountains, uh, you know, the, when we did the hike in El Pico, that was a tremendous national park with a tremendous trail. But a lot of these, uh, it's you're talking about maybe a six-inch trail that looks like a rabbit run uh, with uh, drop-offs of 60 degrees on both sides. There's a lot mm. of ridge hikes to be done. So they're, they're somewhat dangerous, and I would say <laughs> depending on – and I'm, I'm a chicken, so I don't, I don't know, but uh, – you have to think about the risks versus the rewards. <laughs> well, and that's the way I feel about sailing. You have to think of the risks versus the rewards. Um, but when it comes to mountaineering, the more you do, the more you know, and the more experience you have, you know, the higher your comfort level. And you, you sort out, yeah. you know, how to mitigate the the risk quite a lot. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's the same way with sailing. on our hike, and I was not when we did uh, Mount Temitiehu. And I think he could have gone on and maybe he could have found the summit. I don't know if there was a trail to the summit or not, but uh, he could have gone on the ridge hike a lot longer than I was willing to do it. You know, I've gone on to Google Earth and you go out in the middle of the Pacific somewhere and you start zooming in. You'll find a little speck of something and, and you zoom in even more and there's an island and maybe it's a mile across and eight miles long or something. And then you realize people are born, live an entire life, and die on that little bitty spit, that little bit of land in the middle of the Pacific. And it just, it captures the imagination. I'm like, wow, what would it be like to go there, meet those people, and see what kind of a culture they have? And I, it just blows my mind. And really, the best way to do that would be on a sailboat, like you're doing. It's just got to be. I don't know. I mean, I think you can get most places in the world. Uh, I think the it, it's somewhat challenging to get to Fatu Hiva in the Marquesas. There are six inhabited islands, and I visited all of them. And the only one that didn't have an airport uh, was uh, Fatu Hiva. So I think most places in French Polynesia you can get to by plane. Uh, that being said, you know they're they're small planes. They're, I guess, they're somewhat expensive for the amount of distance you're you're going. And uh, you know, when I was in Tahiti, there was actually an airline strike, and so that actually delayed my cruise like a week because of the airline strike. So, um, 
it just adds a little bit of complexity. But, it, you know, I mean, I think there are some places that you can only get by boat. I tend to, I, you know, I like to go to places with people in them. And so those usually people find a way to get to places. So you could, for instance, if you wanted to hitch a ride on a sailboat or if you wanted to fly there or if you wanted to hitch a ride on a cargo ship, all those things are possible. Mm. And there's people that hitchhike around the world on sailboats all the time. Wow, that's really, really neat stuff. So just give us an overview of what these places might be like. What's their topography? What's the vegetation? What's the weather? You know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, it's it's tropical. Uh, the, the Marquesas are, you know, they're, I would say, kind of a little bit jungly, but not too much. Uh, they, they're going to have a lot of vegetation. They're going to be very uh, steep places with a lot of mountains and valleys and rivers. Uh, if you go to the Marquesas are the kind of the youngest islands in French Polynesia. The other place that a lot of people stop when they're doing the Pacific puddle jump or the coconut milk run uh, is in the two motus. Two motus are very different. So the diving is not so great in the Marquesas because the rivers kind of muddy the waters but uh, in the two motus, they're atolls, and so they, they have very clear waters, great diving. Uh, so my crew member uh, dove with the sharks in Fakarava, and we're going to have great pictures of that on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel. Uh, but I'm a chicken. I don't like to swim with sharks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, And then if you're talking about the Society Islands, they have kind of – they're kind of uh, the – the oldest ones are the Tuamotus. Those are those are volcanic islands that have fallen back into the sea, and uh, the Society Islands where Tahiti is, they are halfway between uh, the Marquesas and the Tuamotus. That they have reefs around them, and they have some great diving and snorkeling. Uh, but they also have those jagged high mountains, and actually they have the highest mountains on Tahiti of all of French Polynesia, which are not terribly high, but uh, they, they're they over, th I don't know, uh, over a thousand meters, I think. Wow, that's substantial. meters is the biggest one. But, you know, I think there's a lot of peaks that are not climbed in, in French Polynesia. Uh, so if you're really... Um, an eager person and kind of uh, more experienced, more into it than I am. Uh, I think there's a lot of uncharted territory. Well, you know, I have to ask, you've been doing this for a few years now, and uh, I know that it's impacted your life. And I have to ask, you know, when you decided I'm going to, I'm going to go around the world, why not? That has it turned out like you expected and, and what have the life impacts been for you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I enjoy it. I think it's a, a lot of fun. It's a pastime. Uh, you know, it gets you out of the house. It gets you into the elements. You know, I always uh, have been a runner. And so I guess I was always doing kind of outdoor type sports with that. But uh, you spend more time outdoors when you're uh, sailing. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt about that. So has the adventure of it kind of become a motivator for you? Uh, I like I like planning expeditions. And I think one of the benefits of doing it kind of 
part-time versus maybe full-time is that it feels like an expedition that something that you plan towards uh versus one thing after another right <laughs> it, it doesn't it does it still doesn't feel like you know oh this is how i live and this is where i am <laughs> you know travel experts have been saying lately that you know if you're going to go on a trip it just makes an awful lot of sense to plan the one after the trip you're getting ready to go on because when you come back it's kind of like oh it's all over you know and they're saying you should always have something to look forward to and it sounds like you do because <laughs> you know you've got a long journey ahead of you to get to circumnavigate the planet so every time you finish a leg of the journey you always have the next leg yep i think that you know you Linus, you, to you, it, it seems like, well, this is what I do. It's pretty normal, you know, but for the rest of us, this is big stuff. <laughs> it's really exciting to me to think about the life experiences that you're having out there. Just amazing. Will you fill us in on the next leg that's coming up? What's what's in the near future? Okay, so the next leg, I'm my current thinking, and that's written on sand at low tide, uh, <laughs> is, is that... We're going to go to the Society Islands. So we're going to, we've visited Morea, which is right next to Tahiti. And we've spent a long time in Tahiti, boats in Tahiti right now. We're going to go up to the Northern Society Islands of Uahini and Rayatea and Taha and Bora Bora and Maputi and visit those places for several weeks and hopefully get to do some more hiking in those places. And then uh, we'll probably sail to Tonga and we might stop in the Cook Islands, but then again, we might not. We might stop in Nui. We might sail to Samoa. Uh, and so my plan is to either haul out in Samoa, Tonga or Fiji, uh, depending on, uh, timing and and weather and all this other stuff but i think the most likely scenario is that we'll go to tonga and my wife and daughter will meet uh, me in tonga and they'll, they'll cruise for a couple weeks like they did this year and uh, i'll have crew members who join me in tahiti and they see the society islands and uh, sail across to tonga and possibly stop in the cook islands which are in between uh French Polynesia and Tonga. And then what would be the leg after that? Uh, I would say probably after that, we'd probably stop at um, Fiji, Vanuatu, and probably haul out in New Caledonia would be my current thinking. So that would be two years ahead in 2019. Mm, how fun is that to have something to look forward to? So when you're back in Louisiana and it's, you know, it may not be terribly cold, but it is winter time, right? And you're teaching the students and, you know, doing the daily grind thing, even though I'm sure you really enjoy that. Um, does it help to have the the thought of the next adventure, the next leg of the journey on your mind? It does. And it, it and it's also fun. You know, I do the monthly uh, vlogs about the around the world. And so it's 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 fun to edit those and, and uh, relive the, the trip from the previous time uh you know i i'm gonna take a break from writing i did a lot of writing uh over the previous two years uh but i am enjoying uh the 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 video making yeah i'm sure i'm sure 
So I know that it's impossible to really do this, but let's rewind and let's say that the volcano didn't erupt in Iceland and you didn't fall in love with sailing and you never you never took this journey. What do you think your life would be like in comparison? Uh, I probably would be wealthier. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I would have took up something else. I'm not sure. Well, speaking as a professor of finance, that kind of makes sense. That might be your first response, huh? Yeah, it's, you know, sailing's not good for your wealth, but well, it may be good for your health. Good for your health. And I always say, Linus, you've probably heard me say it before, that I would rather have memories than stuff. And exactly. I think that the wealth of memories that you're accumulating is is amazing. I mean, that's that's riches that, you know, you can't put a price on right there. So really, really cool. Well, Linus, you know what? We're running out of time. It's been really fun to catch up with you and to hear how your journey is continuing and to give people another taste of uh, your ongoing saga. And again, if people want to find you, they should just Google slow boat sailing and they're going to find you in a, a half a dozen different ways. Um, but will you close this out with just maybe telling us a story about an experience that you had on this leg? that you kind of stands out in your mind, a memory like we were talking about that you're going to hang on to for the rest of your life. Yeah, I, I really liked uh, the visit to Fatu Hiva. You know, the Fatu Hiva is, there's a book by Thor Heyerdahl, uh, which you might want to read. And it, it talks about how he camped out in Fatu Hiva. And it just kind of uh, really made that, help make that place uh, a kind of a magical place in a lot of uh, outdoor adventures, mines. Uh, it, it's, you, you have a bay, which is actually a really difficult bay to anchor in. They have just really big winds blowing through that bay, say storm force winds because of the mountains and the, the pressure gradients and stuff like that. And it's a fairly deep anchorage and fairly small anchorage. And it's fairly, uh, fairly crowded because people just love it's so beautiful. Mm. And, uh, you know, I just love the experience of being there in that, you know, the small town of Hanavave and meeting the people and going on the waterfall hike and going on the mountain hikes. Uh, that was just, I thought that was super cool. Uh, I took a, you know, I enjoyed the hike. We did, I, I paid somebody to drive me to the next town and then I walked back and I thought that was, that was a great experience. Neat. Well, and you have hundreds more similar experiences ahead of you, I'm sure. So we look forward to hearing more about it the next time we can get you on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Linus, you're kind enough to offer some special discounts for our listeners for some of the stuff that you have to offer there, your books and what have you. So can you share that with us? Yeah, I'll make the uh, audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World part-time 99 cents for the month of September. And you can get that on gumroad.com. And uh, on September 16th, I'll do a free day for my book, Slow Boat to Cuba. Uh, so your listeners can get the ebook version for free. The audiobook version of How to Sail Around the World part time sells it for nine ninety nine on iTunes, but I can uh, give you ninety percent off on Gumroad in the month of September. Wow, thank you. That's really cool. We appreciate that.
Okay. It was great to be on. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, Linus. Keep up the good work. (laughs) All right. And for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, make sure that you're chasing your dreams, that, that you're planning for that next adventure, and get out there and have some fun. Coming up on Monday's episode, Phoebe Smith is here to talk about extreme sleeping in unusual places. You're not going to want to miss that one. Until then, get out and have some fun.